Today we will be looking again at 1 Timothy chapter 4. So if you'll turn there and um, I'll begin reading in verse 12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its great wisdom. And, O oh Lord, I pray that you would increase our distrust in ourselves that you would increase uh, our trust in your word, that we would submit to it, that we would order our lives and ministries according to what is written. Oh, Father, help us. We are surrounded by so many worldly influences, uh, self-sufficiency, pragmatism, intellectual pride, Father, help us to lay aside everything that contradicts your word. To hold on to it, to hold on to the word and to practice it. Lord, help us now in this lesson that we might uh, gain a benefit. In Jesus name, amen. So just quickly, um, we'll still be in verse 12. But I just want to look at the introductory phrase there. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. And of course, as we looked in our last session, that does not mean that we are to, to walk around demanding uh, that uh, people respect us because of our association possibly with someone else or because of the office that we hold. This is one of the greatest errors, and it can cause you to become a great detriment to the church, to the kingdom, when you say to yourself, I'm an elder, therefore, listen to me. Or I have known uh, men that associate themselves with well-known men and say, you know, I'm in their entourage, therefore, listen to me. You need to earn the respect of people. And you do that not necessarily by your academic powers or your great intellect or your eloquence or maybe even your your ability to bully people. You earn it through your character, your Christ-like character by what you actually do. And you say, so he says, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith and purity, show yourself an example of those 
who believe. That last phrase, it can either be translated, show yourself an example, as an example of what a true believer really is, or show yourself as an example to other believers so that they might follow, as in Paul, who said, you know, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that last phrase there is always important. You are a very arrogant individual if you would just say, imitate me and leave off the last part. Imitate me as I seek to imitate Christ and where I fail to imitate Christ, please go another direction. You see, brothers, there is so much noise today. There, there are so many people on the Internet making a brand for themselves, creating a ministry for themselves, you know, concentrating on, you know, how many tweets or how many followers or Instagram and how many followers. Oh, dear brothers, don't do that. Instead, seek to be godly. Seek to possess knowledge, but know this, the true fruit of knowledge is always going to be Christ likeness. And you do not know what you think, you know, if it's not having an impact on your life. Now, in our last session, we, we talked about speech. We talked about conduct and we talked about love. Now we're going to talk about faith. Now, to some of you, this may seem kind of unusual. Why would Paul say to be an example with regard to to faith? Because, you know, um, faith is believing that Jesus Christ died, rose again on our behalf, believing everything the Bible says about that great work of propitiation. And so you would assume that, you know, faith is is a reality in, in everyone's life, but he's talking about more than saving faith. He's talking about believing God, believing God's promises, believing God's commands and living a life of ongoing, ever increasing trust in God. Now, this is very, very important. Years ago, I was asked to preach on obedience. I'll, I'll never forget that. And I, I found it unusual that sometimes the word um, with regard to obedience in the New Testament is sometimes translated um, with regard to faith or believing. And I begin to really focus in on the um, relationship between faith and obedience. And it's very, very important. Um, I'm going to obey you only to the degree that I believe you. And in many, many ways, disobedience is a sign of unbelief. When God tells you to go a certain direction or it will be harmful for you, if you don't go that certain direction, then you're not believing that it's really that harmful not to. You're not believing God. You see, when God says you shall not commit adultery, the person who commits adultery is not believing God. 
when he says you shall not murder, when he says you shall not steal. And so we need to realize that there is a direct relationship. And if we are going to increase in obedience, we must increase in faith. And if we're going to increase in faith, it is through studying God's word. And as we study God's word, the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Now, I want to talk to you for just a moment about something. I want to talk about faith and boldness. Now, when we think of boldness, oftentimes we think of a, you know, a broad shouldered individual who is afraid of nothing and marches forward. Well, that's not true. Um, that's not true at all. Boldness comes from believing God. From trusting God, from learning little by little that um, no matter what you go through, no matter what he calls you to do, he is able. And not only that, once we begin to know God and know the task that he's given us, we realize that living by faith is more than just living day to day following his commands. But it's this idea of seeking to constantly push the envelope, to constantly go forward in his name and to do great works. I am astounded today at how many men are in bondage to fear. How many ministers are in bondage to fear? It's as though they're afraid to take the ship out of the harbor and attempt great things for God. In a way, it seems that their God is self-preservation. Oftentimes I go around and I talk to men about the Great Commission. I talk to men about about, you know, how they should step out in faith and seek to do something. To change the nations, to bring the gospel where it it hasn't been preached. And I find men to be so timid, so afraid even to challenge their own churches. To do more in the Great Commission. It's almost as they they feel that if, if they step out somehow that they're going to, you know, there's not going to be enough funds to take care of their salary or if they step out, something's going to go wrong. Men, listen to me, you, you must lay aside timidity, not wisdom, but you must lay aside timidity. You must also lay aside um, what I would call the idol of self-preservation. Always concerned about yourself more than the work of God. Yes, the work of God needs to be done, but if it it demands that I risk, oh, I I dare not do that. That's that's a wrong attitude. And I, I want to show you that. I want us to turn for just a moment to the book of Joshua. You know, Joshua is is an amazing person. God had amazing uh, work for him to do in many ways. He's a he's a figure or a type of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I, I think more attention ought to be given. The minister ought to give more attention to to the study of Joshua's life. Now, in chapter one, we know that, well. Moses is now gone. 
that chapter of biblical history where Moses took the lead, it's already been read. It's finished. And now it's the time for Joshua to stand up and take his place. And and what a difficult thing that would be. I think of of men like Charles Spurgeon and having to take his place after he passed away or Martin Lloyd-Jones or, you know, R.C. Sproul. How, how do you take their place? You're not as you're not as uh, spiritual. You're not as uh, academic. You're not as gifted. But you see, in some ways, that doesn't matter because you have the same God. That, that's one of the things that I would really want you to see is that you hear stories about Hudson Taylor. You, you have the same God. You have, hear stories about George Mueller and Charles Spurgeon. You have the same God. So I don't think Joshua was standing there thinking, you know, looking at Moses and then comparing himself to Moses. I think he was just looking at Moses as God. All of us have different gifts. We have different personalities. We have different callings, but all of us have the same God. And all of us should seek to walk by faith, which means more than just saving faith, but faith that goes out and seeks to do great things in God's name and in God's power. So let's look for just a moment at Joshua chapter one. Verse five, but let's go up to verse two. A bold statement here. So God speaks to Joshua and he says, Moses, my servant is dead. Moses is gone. Moses served his generation and Moses is gathered to his fathers. He's dead. Now, therefore, arise. It's time for you now to stand in that same place and do the same thing. Many of you, you love the Puritans, you love the Reformers, you love the early Baptists, early Evangelicals, Presbyterians. Praise God. And you admire some of those men, and rightly so, but they're dead. They're dead now. Learn what you can from them as Joshua. I'm almost certain learn from Moses, but they're dead. Now you rise up and cross the Jordan. He wasn't telling him just now you take his place and stay where you are. Be safe. No, he's saying take it farther. Joshua entered in where Moses did not go. You shouldn't think that the work was done with Calvin or Luther or Spurgeon or Martin Lloyd-Jones or R.C. Sproul or so many others that we admire, you shouldn't think the work is done. No, you've got to go farther. You've got to take it farther. And you say, but I'm not that quality of man. I don't have that giftedness. I don't have all the things they had. Well, you do have the one necessary thing, and that is you have their God. Now get in the scriptures, study the scriptures, get on your knees, know God. And that will be enough. That will be enough. 
So he says, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross the Jordan. So now let's go down to to verse five. Here are some of the promises that God makes to him. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. The same God. How many times can I say it? The same God. Calling you to go further than the generation that preceded you. Go further. Now, I want to say something, and it's kind of tongue in cheek. It's it's childlike. It's personal. It's subjective. Okay, but it is something that's been a part of my life. Uh, It may even sound silly, but in humility, I offer it to you. I remember when I was younger. And just crying out to God. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? It became a consuming question, possibly far too consuming. And just one day it entered into my mind. No, I I would not dare say God spoke to me. I didn't hear an audible voice, but just something came to mind in such a strong and definitive way. I was like, what do you want me to do? And all I could think of was, what can you believe me for? How far do you want to take this? How far do you want to step out? Now, I want you to think about that. You're you're listening to a man who is confessional. 1689. A man who believes in the sovereignty of God and the providence of God to such a degree that I'm offensive to some people. I believe that God has decreed all things. Yet I do believe there is room for that question. Let me ask you a question, brothers. Do you just want to maintain? Do you just want to have a nice ministry for yourself? Or are you driven by the fact that there are so many places around the world where the banner of Christ is not flying? Are you driven by the fact that there's so many French speaking countries without the gospel, without trained men? You know, I could ask you, David, you know, are you content with your church or does it bother you that most of Paris is without light? Or I could say to some of you brothers, Quebec. Or we could go on and on and on. What can you believe him for? That doesn't mean you tear out of your office and do something, you know, uh, in a manner unthinking or without going to God in great prayer and seeking counsel from others. But what am I saying is, is are you just content to have your little ministry or even your big ministry? 
Or is there something in you that wants to do more? Do you want to go farther with God? Do you want to believe God? Do you want to take greater risks that there might be a greater harvest? Go further out into the deep where it's dangerous because that's where the fish are. So faith is not just saving faith. It's just not just believing the promises of God in our little safe harbor and context, but it's also stepping out. And taking risks, biblical risks, but risks nonetheless. You know, I've always said that if the charismatic movement has a has a sin, I would say that primarily it is the sin of presumption. And that is believing things that God never promised. But if I would look at the rest of us, I would say that our great sin is the sin of unbelief, that we don't even believe what God has promised. And brothers, sometimes I want to share with you that um, although it is not the fault. Of the biblical doctrine of sovereignty. Many take that. To believe that we ought to be passive. Till we ought to just wait around. If it's going to be done, God will do it, is the saying. Well. I can understand your reasoning. The problem is it's not biblical. Sometimes the scriptures set things before us that are difficult to put together, and so we just hold them in attention. God has decreed all things before the foundation of the earth. He knows the future because he's the author of it. And yet you have not because you ask not. Are you going to slam those arrows to the ground three times? I mean, what are you going to do? Are you going to? I would want you to have zeal and boldness to seek God. And to move out of your comfort zone biblically. But nonetheless, with zeal. So he says, verse six, be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. And then in verse seven, again, only be strong and very courageous. Now. From where comes genuine strength and courage? It seems like we are prone to idolatry, that when we see a man acting with strength in the ministry and acting with courage in the ministry, we automatically assume there's something special about that man. When I have discovered that the only thing special about the man is his relationship with God, because often the men most weak. Uh, most timid are the ones who do uh, dangerous things that require courage. And they're doing it not because of some personality trait within themselves. They're doing it because they know God. Never forget in Daniel 11 talks about a time when a when a great and evil man appears on the scene of history and does great damage and leads many astray. But those people who know their God. They don't just persevere. They do great things. You see, one of the things 
If you look at what you're required to do in the ministry, it's an absolute impossibility. I don't care how smart you are, how eloquent you are. I don't even care how much, you know, you, you know, really good theology. The task of the Great Commission, the task of planting or pastoring a church is absolutely impossible. Like I like to say, you know, uh, it's like the city of Jericho. It is tightly shut up. None come out and none go in and you have no ability. There is no human power that can open up those gates or throw down those walls. And so physical strength. Our physical gifts or natural talents do not avail. They're useless. So if you have none of those things, it's no problem. Because what needs to be done has to be done in the power of God. If you think I am a weak man, if you think I am a man full of fear, if that's what you think about yourself, that's not a problem. If it causes you to run to God, if you say, I have no wisdom, okay, great. That means you won't trust in your own wisdom or pragmatism of the West, and you'll go to Scripture, and the only thing you will talk about or affirm is what Scripture says. You say, I have no strength, I have no power. Wonderful, because that type of power is useless, anyways. If your weakness drives you to cry out for greater and greater manifestations in the life of the Holy Spirit, wonderful. I bless God for my weaknesses. I bless God sometimes for the lack of, of degree or, or lack of IQ or whatever else I lack. If it drives me to depend upon him, because when we're weak and that weakness drives us to him, it makes us strong. Your problem is not that you're too weak. The problem is you don't recognize how weak you are. And you're not letting that weakness drive you to him. So this is only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. You know, he's talking about two things in one sense, but in another sense, you have to be courageous to keep God's law. Especially in this world, dear brothers, especially around many who claim to know Christ. If a man begins to take seriously the word of God, now I'm not talking about extremism. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about he goes off with his own definitions of things that have nothing to do with church history, no. But a man who seriously takes God's word as it is. He's going to have opposition. Even from within, he's going to have opposition. He needs courage. I feel like in my country, many of, of even my fellow brothers. Have compromised in many ways in the last three years because they want to appear before the world academically and culturally sophisticated. Because they don't want to be called names, they don't want to be misunderstood, and therefore they compromise little by little. No, we need courage. To stand fast. And to not apologize for who we are. Or apologize for what we believe and proclaim. 
He goes on and he says, only be strong and courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. Why would you turn aside to the left or the right? You say, well, because it's difficult or well, because there's opposition. I would submit to you that you turn to the left or the right is because you have no faith. You're trusting in yourself. You're trusting in others. You're trusting possibly in the lies of culture or the devil or the uninstructed. But if you truly trust in God, you will make his word the light to your path, a lamp to your feet. You will hold on to it. Listen, people come up to me all the time. I don't know why they come to me all the time, says, what do you think about the political situation in America or the political situation in North America or the political situation in the West and everything that's going on? And the only thing I can tell them is I have no certainty at all with regard to, to who should be believed, if anyone. I mean, we live in a time of great skepticism because so many of our leaders have lied to us and been proven deceptive. In some ways, in some cases, on both sides. I know myself when I look in the mirror that even when I've been sincere, if I follow my own way, I'm wrong. So by process of elimination, brothers, what should we do? Hold on to the scriptures, not turn to the left or the right. Why? Because we believe they're true. And we believe what God says with regard to the warnings in disobedience and the blessings for obedience. Then in a day when when sometimes, you know, church planting and church growth looks like a circus of clowns, all with their silly little strategies and entertainment, you have to fasten yourself to the word of God. In every aspect of your life, personally, in the church, in the family, in society, the word of God, the word of God. That's how you're that's how you are strong and courageous. And look what he says. Verse eight, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Now, I want you to see something here. Many times we think I'm going to study this passage until I know it. And then you kind of, well, I know that. And you go on. That's not what he's saying to do here. You certainly need to study a passage until you know it. But we need to constantly, constantly be confronted by that passage. It's not, oh, I know it. Now I go on and don't don't look back. No, constantly the word of God and not just the New Testament, not just the book of Romans or the book of Ephesians, but all the word of God. We need to study it. We need to read it. It needs to get a hold of us and become a part of us. Only then can we truly walk by faith. We know that in the New Testament, faith comes by hearing by hearing the word 
of God. Not just by learning it once and laying it aside as though you've already you already understand that passage. It's reading, it's meditating, it's memorizing, it's feeding on the word of God. Let me ask you a question. If I looked at your phone and saw your screen time, how would it compare to your scripture time? How would it compare to your prayer time? Brothers, I guess in some way it's important to be up to date with what's going on in the world, but there's nothing on that phone that's going to make you a better man of God. You can even get involved in listening to too many sermons. And too many podcasts. And reading too many Twitters and too many Instagrams. You are a man of God in your own right. Therefore, you need to be in the word. You need to be in the word. You. So that you're knowing God and faith becomes easy. Because you know him. And look what he says in verse eight at the last part, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Now, I think this is very interesting. What was his primary job? <laughs> to go in and fight and conquer the land. Now, this isn't spiritual fighting necessarily. I mean, they're fighting with swords and bows and slings. Now, so I just look at this. He's going to go in on a military campaign, but the most important thing for him is to study God's law day and night. You would think he was supposed to be studying the enemy or studying the latest trend in weaponry or studying military tactics. Now, I'm sure he had to do all that to some degree. But what you need to see is none of it mattered if he wasn't in a right relationship with God, if he wasn't walking by faith and he couldn't be walking by faith unless the word of God was his food. You must see this. I don't care what you're called to do. The word of God must be center. And not just a word about the word. Not just someone else's book about the word, even though you can benefit from that. You need to be in the book. The book. If you look back at our fathers, some of them whom we admire, they all had one common trait. They were men of the book. Verse nine, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, that is directly given to Joshua, but there is no reason to deny its general application to all of God's people and especially as ministers. This doesn't mean that we'll go through life without problems, trials. It doesn't mean we won't be martyred. But look what it says. I've commanded you. Listen. Confidence in God is not just a suggestion. Lack of confidence in God is disobedience to a direct command. You and I should not be constantly full of anxiety and fear and looking at our phones for the latest newscast about what's going on. 
There is a real sense in which we should fear no one. I believe it was John Wesley who said, oh, give me a group of men who fear only two things, God and sin. God and sin. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. How did he receive this message in a voice, in a dream, in a vision? I don't know. But Jesus Christ stood on this earth in a, in, in a body and told us, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He is with you. You know, I want to end by saying this. I have. I like to use this illustration. I have been in some of the most dangerous situations, deadly situations. I've been in cities that were extremely dangerous, neighborhoods where you can't walk across them. I've been in jungles. I've been in places with bombs going off and everything else, and I made it through. And many times I was not afraid. Do you want to know why? Because every time I was in the in the jungle, I was with people who knew the jungle. Every time I was in those those neighborhoods that were full of thieves and drug addicts and murderers. I was with someone who knew. That kind of neighborhood and was respected and even feared there. So it wasn't some boldness within myself or some military training or or anything like that. I had confidence because of the people who were with me. I remember one time going into the favelas there in Brazil, and it is, as David Romero would know, very, very dangerous. Police don't even go in there. But I went into some of the worst parts of it because I was with a pastor who was greatly respected and could go even where the police couldn't go. But if I'd have been in there by myself, I wouldn't have made it out. Well, someone is with you. The one is with you. Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, who conquered death. He's with you. And so we need to start proceeding by faith. We need to start conquering more. And you as pastors and church planters and evangelists, you need to think more in terms of conquering, of going out, of stepping out, of taking risk, not foolishness, not the foolishness of the immature, not the foolishness of unbiblical zeal, but actually going to God, seeking God to know him and then say, oh, God. Lead me to go out in your name. This world is dark. It needs to be conquered for your son. Show me what you would have me do. Oh, brothers, don't be passive. This is not a time for men who are passive. This is not a time for that. It's not a time to circle the wagons and be all afraid. Because the end is near. If the end is near, then let's go out swinging our swords. And with scars and dents all over our shields. Let's draw the fire of the enemy. And let's take Christ to the world. And I can tell you, brethren. 
There is more gospel light in the jungles of South America and more gospel light on the plains and prairies of Africa than there is in the cities where you men work. So it's going to require a boldness. But he is worthy and he is with you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, and I pray that you will use it in the heart of these men. Lord, give us a absolute and perfect distrust in self, in self-wisdom, in self-strength. And give us, Lord, oh God, an absolute dependence upon you and use these men, Lord, not just to maintain, not just to guard the wall. But to go out, Lord, from the harbor to sail in difficult seas. That the gospel of Christ might go out to the even the most remote parts of the world. Father, I ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Amen.